Welcome to the Indiana Lawyer Podcast, your audio source for news in Hoosier Law, brought to you by Taft. I'm Jordan Morey, Managing Editor of the Indiana Lawyer and your host. And I'm Olivia Covington, co-host and editor of the Indiana Lawyer. Wherever you're listening from today, thanks for joining us. Per usual, we'll start this week's episode with some headlines before diving into a one-on-one interview with a leader from the Hoosier legal community. For this week's show, we have a special guest from the federal courts, Zachary Myers, U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of Indiana. We've got a packed show for you today, so let's get rolling. Today is February 23rd, 2022, and these are your headlines. First, let's start with the U.S. Supreme Court. While the country waits for President Biden to announce his first Supreme Court nominee, the court's newest justice recently traveled to Indiana to speak to Hoosier Law students. Justice Amy Coney Barrett visited Notre Dame Law on February 14th for the Notre Dame Law Review's Federal Court Symposium. The justice is a member of the Fighting Irish, having graduated from Notre Dame Law in 1997. During her talk, Barrett discussed the issue of federal equity power, which she described as a technical branch of the law. Barrett said equity jurisdiction gives federal courts access to a body of law, but does not empower judges to become lawmakers. To that end, Barrett called on Congress to step in to, quote, ameliorate unjust results or unfairness when a judge's hands are tied by the law. She described herself as a formalist, compared to Justice Sonia Sotomayor, whom she said is more of a pragmatist. This month's lecture marked the second time Barrett has publicly returned to her law school alma mater since joining the nation's highest court. Back in September, she taught a three-week course to a group of third-year law students. Justices Samuel Alito and Clarence Thomas have also visited Notre Dame Law within the last year. All right, let's bring it back to Indiana and check in with some news about the state's highest court. IL reporter Katie Stancombe has an update on how the court's newest justice will be selected. Katie? Thanks, Jordan. Indiana is preparing to select its newest member of the Indiana Supreme Court to fill a vacancy left by Justice Stephen David when he retires from the bench this fall. So far, 19 Indiana lawyers and judges have applied for the Supreme Court position. The Indiana Judicial Nominating Commission, led by Indiana Chief Justice Loretta Rush, will host interviews for the judicial vacancy on February 28th and March 1st in Indianapolis. After the first round of interviews is complete, the commission will choose a group of semifinalists to undergo a second round of interviews in April. Once the interviews are completed, the JNC will go into executive session before holding a public vote to select the three most qualified candidates. Those names will then be sent to Governor Eric Holcomb, who will choose Indiana's next Supreme Court justice within 60 days. Justice Stephen David, the longest-serving Indiana justice, said the judicial selection process is very time-consuming and arduous. David said the charge can be daunting, thinking back on his own experiences as a former chair of the Allen County Judicial Nominating Commission and current chair of the Marion County Judicial Selection Committee. It is it's difficult. You're looking for people with significant talents in different areas, someone that's willing to immerse themselves in, in the new position to, to learn it, and it's one that you keep learning. Someone who's willing to give 125% every day, bring your A-game every day, that's that's a lot of expectation, and, and nobody's perfect, but that's, I'm, I'm pretty confident that's those are some of the things they're considering you know, when they're going through their, their process. Joel Shum, a clinical professor at Indiana University Robert H. McKinney School of Law and close follower of the judicial selection process, said that commission members spend hours reviewing hefty applications of each candidate. In recent years, they've even taken time outside of the formal interview process to meet individually with applicants to get to know them better. 
However, Shum said the importance of the formal interview can't be overstated. Just because even if it's 20 minutes, you can get an impression of somebody in that 20 minutes about what they would be like on the bench, what they would be like speaking to a group of lawyers or a group of fifth graders that come and visit the state house. Uh, and in that 20 minutes, you really can, can tell a lot about a person. When it comes down to it, David suggested that the interviewees take a deep breath, relax, and enjoy the opportunity. Stay tuned for more Indiana Lawyer coverage of the Supreme Court Justice interviews next week. Thanks, Katie. Now let's check in with the other two branches of government. First, an update on a legal battle we've told you a lot about between Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb and the Indiana Legislature. The executive and legislative branches are still in court over last year's House Enrolled Act 1123, which allows the Indiana General Assembly to call itself into special session during a state of emergency, like the ongoing COVID-19 public health emergency. Holcomb has argued that HEA 1123 is a violation of separation of powers principles and the Indiana Constitution. He says Article 4, Section 9 of the state constitution gives only the governor the authority to call a special session, not the legislature. The case has reached the Indiana Supreme Court, where the General Assembly is now arguing that Holcomb is misreading language in the Indiana Constitution that says, quote, if in the opinion of the governor, the public welfare shall require it, he may, at any time by proclamation, call a special session, end quote. According to the legislature, that language gives the governor limited authority over a legislative power the power to set the length and frequency of its sessions. The General Assembly argues that the language allowing the governor to call a special session is merely an exception to the rule that lawmakers have the authority to set their own schedules. Thus, HEA 1123 is a simple execution of that legislative authority. As for the separation of powers issue, the General Assembly notes in its brief to the Supreme Court that the special session language is in Article 4 of the Indiana Constitution, which deals with legislative powers, rather than Article 5, which deals with executive powers. The Supreme Court is set to hear arguments in the case on April 7th. Stay tuned to this podcast and our website for continued updates. Next, let's check in with some other bills we've been following. IL editor Olivia Covington has a rapid-fire update. We're less than a month out from the end of the 2022 legislative session, and lawmakers are starting to make major moves on major bills. Here's a rundown of the status of the bills we've been following at Indiana Lawyer, with some help from our sister paper, the Indianapolis Business Journal. First, House Bill 1001, the Vaccine Mandate Bill. The original version of the bill would have required employers to accept religious objections to employee vaccine mandates without any further questions. But a recent amendment now allows employers to accept religious exemptions under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, leaving latitude for employers to take workplace safety actions. Next, House Bill 1004, which would give judges discretion to send level six felony offenders to the Department of Correction for mental health and addiction treatment. That bill has received minimal opposition and advanced through two Senate committees with only one no vote. It's now before the full Senate. Next is House Bill 1041, the controversial bill that would prohibit transgender female students from playing on girls' sports teams. Criticism on the bill from students and LGBT advocacy groups continues to mount, but the legislation has advanced to the full Indiana Senate. It was scheduled for possible amendment in the Senate on February 21st, the day I'm recording this. Another controversial bill related to Indiana students is House Bill 1134. That's the bill that originally prohibited teachers from teaching, quote, divisive concepts in the classroom. 
The bill has been amended so that now teachers cannot teach students that one group is inherently superior to another or that one group is responsible for the past actions of other members of that group. Also, the bill gives parents greater access to teaching materials. In the Senate, we've been watching Senate Bill 70, which would amend Indiana's obstruction of justice statute. As it stands now, the bill would create a level 5 felony if a person causes a witness to give false or misleading statements during a domestic violence or child abuse case. However, the offense does not include persuading a witness to give a false statement because lawmakers thought the word persuasion was too vague. Of course, these are just a handful of the bills the General Assembly is considering, and the status of a bill can change quickly. Check out our website for further coverage of important legislation. Moving out of the State House, we've got some news for you from the world of civil legal aid. You've probably heard of the American Bar Association's Free Legal Answers website and its counterpart in the Hoosier State, Indiana Free Legal Answers. Recent data shows that the ABA program has received more than 200,000 submitted questions since 2016, while the Indiana program has received more than 15,000. But these milestone numbers aren't something to celebrate. According to the ABA, hitting 200,000 questions shows that the need for affordable civil legal services is still great across the country. That need has been exacerbated since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020. In March of 2020, the ABA reported that it had received about 100,000 questions. In less than two years, that number grew to more than 200,000. In Indiana, data from Pro Bono Indiana shows that family law and housing issues dominate Hoosiers' legal needs. Since 2016, the top three areas of law generating questions in Indiana were custody and visitation issues, divorce, separation and annulment issues, and non-subsidized housing issues. The national numbers are similar, with about 40% of questions relating to family and children's legal issues, 15% relating to housing, and 10% relating to consumer and finance issues. Nationwide, more than 10,000 lawyers have volunteered their time to ABA Free Legal Answers. In Indiana, that number is 437 attorneys. All right, let's wrap up with a preview of a story Katie is working on for the next issue of Indiana Lawyer. Katie, what can you tell us? Members of the U.S. House of Representatives and Senate recently came together in bipartisan support to pass a new law that removes the requirement to go through forced arbitration for sexual assault and harassment claims. It's called the Ending Forced Arbitration of Sexual Assault and Sexual Harassment Act of 2021 and it does just that. The law essentially puts the ball in the court of individuals who experience sexual misconduct in the workplace, not their accused perpetrators. Individuals who may have signed an agreement requiring them to arbitrate their sexual harassment and assault claims would have the ability to choose whether to litigate those claims in court or through arbitration. They also may choose to bring an individual or class action lawsuit under the new law. The new law, also referred to as H.R. 4445, isn't limited to employment relationships. Clients, customers, patients, and consumers could also be potentially affected by the changes. President Biden is expected to sign the legislation into law. His administration earlier this month said it is committed to eliminating sexual harassment and assault and, quote, looks forward to working with Congress on broader legislation that addresses these issues. Local legal experts have told me that this new law is a monumental move for survivors of sexual assault and harassment that will ultimately change the legal landscape when it comes to tackling these types of claims. Check out the March 2nd issue of the Indiana Lawyer to learn more. Okay, that's it for this week's headlines. 
As always, for more on these stories or any other Indiana legal news, visit TheIndianaLawyer.com. Also, just a reminder that you can submit your 2022 Leadership and Law nominations on our website. Stick around to hear our interview with Zachary Myers, the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of Indiana. Taft, today's modern law firm. At Taft, we cultivate a highly respectful, transparent workplace that fosters creativity, teamwork, inclusion, and diversity. We couple our culture with a client-first approach, rewarding lawyers who understand their clients' goals and work to deliver success. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. For this week's extended interview, we have Zachary Myers, U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of Indiana, in studio with us today. Attorney Myers, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Before we get started with some questions, I just want to give our listeners a couple notes about you. Uh, Myers was sworn in this past November by Southern District Chief Judge Tanya Walton Pratt. He was an assistant for the Indiana Southern District from 2011 through 2014, before working as an assistant U.S. Attorney for the District of Maryland from 2014 to 2021. Prior to all that, he was an associate at what was then Baker and Daniels from 2008 to 2011 in Indianapolis. So uh, to begin with, um, what drew you towards working as a federal prosecutor? Was that always a goal? Uh, and was that end goal to be back here at the Southern District? I'll, I'll say that it was my first semester criminal procedure class in law school. I had a fantastic uh, professor, uh, Julia Sullivan, if she's listening, um, who is a <laughs> former AUSA herself, and I think a um, disproportionate number of federal prosecutors came out of her class because she really did inspire us about the good work that you can do for your community you know in those roles as, as assistant u s attorneys and you know, I was aspiring to that you know sort of from day one and you know knew that that I had hoped to come back to my hometown to practice in Indianapolis, so that of course leads you to the Southern District of Indiana and I was lucky enough to get an opportunity to join the office you know as a young attorney and, and start my career as a federal prosecutor. You did a, a stint in Maryland, though. I did. <laughs> um, after after a few years here, um, I, I we moved to Maryland, where most of my wife's family is, and you know we're, we're close to them for a while um, until you know I, I, I was able to get this opportunity and, and you know came back home. So tell us about finding out. You know, the president of the United States wants to appoint you to <laughs> this kind of position. What's that? What's that experience like? You know, it it is. You know, I, I think humbling and, you know, it, it still sort of feels surreal sometimes, but, you know, it really is an honor. Um, having practiced as a line prosecutor for a decade, I know that the Department of Justice is just full of, you know, whether it's the, the support professionals, the agents, task force officers, detectives that we work with, the assistant U.S. attorneys from sort of the newest to the most experienced. There's just so many amazing people in federal law enforcement and in the Department of Justice and people who I was able to learn so much from and to get a chance to lead one of our components like this and help sort of support them and, and point us in the, the direction of our current priorities. You know, really, I can't think of a better professional honor. To the extent you can, what's kind of the process of, you know, getting that, that presidential appointment? Can you tell us any of the behind-the-scenes stuff? Um, I, I can tell you that on <laughs> July 26th, I was nominated by the president. Okay. And, you know, went through the Senate confirmation process. Um, I know every... every Every White House is different in how they approach these things. Every and they work closely, obviously, with the senators. And all the senators are, you know, have have their own prerogatives in every state about how they approach these things. But, you know, I was, I was happy to get through the process. Speaking of the Senate, 
confirmation process, you know, depending on who you are, that can sometimes be a more of a difficult process or sometimes it's smooth sailing. What was your experience like? Um, it, it was very straightforward. I had a lot of um, support from, you know, the, the Justice Department sort of takes you under their wing and, and helps you, um, you know, navigate the process to make sure that the Senate gets all the information that they need to have to go through their consideration. Um, I was, was you know, the process of filling out the Senate Judiciary Questionnaire can be sort of daunting, but you sure. get through that and it's important for them to have all that information when they consider. And one of the things that I've been, you know, really gratified by is that not just me, but almost all of my colleagues passed through sort of after the Judiciary Con Committee's consideration, which really is, you know, pretty rigorous, that after we got through that process that we were all able to be, or almost all of us were able to be um, excuse me, uh, recommended unanimously by the Judiciary Committee and approved by voice vote on the floor. Sure. And I think for, you know, these very unique roles as the Chief Federal Law Enforcement Officer in our district, that the degree to which we can have folks coming together and sort of removing it from politics and for focusing on the, the mission of protecting the public and, you know, upholding the rule of law, you know, I was just really grateful to be able to get through it and, and that, you know, people can come together sort of unanimously, you know, to support that. Right. Uh, looking over your resume, uh, one thing that stood out uh, to me at least was uh, that while you were in Maryland, you worked for a time in the National Security and Cybercrime section, uh, serving as, I believe, the first cybercrime counsel for the district. That's correct. Um, what was that experience like, and what did you learn from that job that you brought here to Indiana? Well, I'll tell you that it was a really formative you know, part of my career. Um, we actually, I, I was part of you know, the initial sort of standing up of the National Security and Cybercrime Unit. B before then, the cybercrime unit, the cybercrime work had been housed elsewhere in the district, and national security you know, hadn't, wasn't the formal unit um, with the same number of assistant U.S. attorneys that it became you know, when, when I was there and under U.S. Attorney Rob Herr. You know, the, the national security part of you know, the, the Justice Department you know, has layers of additional complexity. And, you know, the, the cases we work on, you know, are very difficult. The cases that, the, you know, the, the agents and task force officers and, you know, frequently in collaboration with the intelligence community, you know, you're dealing with obviously some of the most sensitive information that the United States, you know, government deals with. And much of the work that you do will never be known to the public. And you're doing it because of your commitment to the mission and commitment to protecting, you know, the public. And it was just really great to be a part of that. And to learn, both in terms of helping set that up and, and working, you know, across all of those agencies and with, you know, the, the prosecutors in Maine Justice and in other districts and be able to take that experience and then apply a lot of the things that I've learned into transitioning into this role. Shifting gears a little bit, um, you know, one of the issues or two of the issues I guess we see here in the, the Southern District, um, of course, the ongoing opioid crisis continues to be an issue and also... Um, violence, but particularly gun violence, and especially here in, in Indianapolis. And I know um, Department of Justice has put some money and resources toward those issues in, in recent years. Can you talk about, you know, the work your office is doing to address those two big issues in this district? Absolutely. And I'll tell you that those are two of the highest priorities that we have, both as a Department of Justice as well as, you know, in this district, in the Southern District of Indiana. In terms of, you know, the opioid epidemic, which, you know, unfortunately, being in Maryland, we, we got to see really, you know, up close and things, you know, and it impacts not just, you know, the, the, the victims of substance abuse disorder, um, the individuals who are engaged in the drug trafficking trade and the people who are negatively impacted by that, but you see the substance abuse issues trickling down into people then getting involved in fraud schemes to support their habits 
or you know you have physicians misusing you know their ability to write prescriptions and essentially you know serving as, as drug dealers in white coats or you have um, a number of individuals who, who are vulnerable by, by reason of their substance abuse addiction and are ending up in the commercial sex trade and being trafficked by other individuals for their financial benefit and exploiting sort of their, their vulnerabilities. And so every area of crime really that, that we touch as federal prosecutors and working with federal investigators is impacted by you know, the, the opioid epidemic. And you see, unfortunately, that growing significantly here in southern Indiana and central Indiana. And, you know, we're really orienting um, law enforcement resources to try to fight that. Um, and one of, one of the things beyond all, all of the, the criminal activity I talked about, one of the things that's really, um, you know, tragic and critical there is the fatal overdoses. That people don't realize um, how little fentanyl it takes, carfentanyl, some of these synthetic opioids, you know, tiny amounts, you know, the, the tip of a pencil can be deadly. And people are, are you know, frequently, but, but the drug is also very cheap, and it's being imported in quantity from other countries, and it, it comes into the United States, and it's not just being sold in and of itself, but unbeknownst to users sometimes is being incorporated into counterfeit pharmaceuticals, into other um, controlled substances, um, you know, we, you know, we're seeing more and more not just, you know, pills coming overseas, counterfeit pills being manufactured, but counterfeit pills being manufactured, you know, right here in this district. And people, you know, are able to, to you know, go online and order a pill press and go online and order the underlying um, controlled substances and, you know, press and create their own, you know, what people think are, are FDA-approved, you know, wow. pharmaceuticals that they might be buying on the street, but they think that these are, are drugs that are otherwise, you know, safe if used as directed, and of course they're not doing this with prescriptions, but what they don't realize is this is actually a fake pill that contains fentanyl and could kill them. Wow. And as bad as the violent crime epidemic is, and I'll talk about that in a moment, and it is, in fact, you know, bad, obviously, in, in Marion County, which is one of, you know, the 59, well, 60 counties in the district, um, you know, I have 59 local prosecutor, um, you know, elected prosecutors who, you know, I collaborate with, but obviously the, the bulk of the population is in and around Indianapolis, and violent crime has been just so bad here and just like in many other urban areas in the last few years. But the number of fatal overdose deaths dwarfs the number multiple times over of, you know, crisis-level, you know, homicides. Wow. So I think that tells you how bad this fatal overdose problem really is. And you're going to see, you know, more and more. Uh, I think the DNA, the you're, you're going to be seeing some, some announcements from the DEA, and you're going to be seeing more and more cases brought in federal courts. And I, I know, you know, some of my colleagues in the state courts are, are pursuing these cases, resulting in death as well. Um, we have some unique, both investigative resources and legal tools that we have to hold folks accountable for dealing these deadly drugs, and particularly whether they're resulting in you know, injury or death to folks or if they're doing this in conjunction with the unlawful um, possession or use of firearms. And you know, we are going to find the individuals who are negatively impacting our community and we're gonna apply our federal investigative resources, our federal prosecution resources, and we're gonna hold them accountable and get them off the streets to try to you know, make our communities a safer place to be. And when, when, so it, sorry, I know that was somewhat of a long answer. No, there's a lot to cover. Um, getting to, to violent crime, which is also you know a, a huge problem, and, and right. one of the reasons why addressing both these issues, why I, I um, you know, we've now reorganized the office 
so that at least in our Indianapolis division, we have a dedicated violent crime unit as well as a dedicated drug trafficking unit. Interesting. Um, not that any of this work wasn't being done before, but just sure. sort of from sort of organizational standpoint and sort of focusing our resources. Um, I'm, you know, we're really committed to you know, using the, the prosecutors that we do have and the agents that we work with to try to make the biggest impact we can. Um, we, we recently counted, and I think I, I have 42 authorized um, assistant U.S. attorney slots to serve 4.2 million people. Mm, wow. Of those 42, 23 of them are line prosecutors in the criminal division. You know, again, for 4.2 million people. And so the resources that we have, um, and you know, I'm, I'm working on getting us more, but the resources that we have in the federal criminal system you know, are just, we're, we're, by design, we're a court of limited jurisdiction. You know, we have to have a federal interest in the cases that we bring. And you know, the, the bulk of investigations, prosecutions, they're always going to happen you know, in our state courts. And you know, our, our state prosecutors have been you know, already, in the three months I've been on the job, remarkable partners to us. And for years, they've been great partners to our office. And those relationships are really important to pursue anything. But with our limited resources, we have to target, you know, we, we might not have a ton of folks, but we have tools that we can use both legally when, when people are engaged in complex um, transnational crimes or they're using things like the dark web or cryptocurrency. You know, there are problems that the federal government is uniquely situated to address. And so we're going to take our limited resources and really point them there to where we can make the biggest impact, you know, for the public that we serve. Sure. What do you see are some, uh, some major issues in the Southern District that might not quite get as much conversation as, you know, what we just mentioned? Well, thank you, and I appreciate that. And, and although it, it's coupled with the violent crime conversation, but it's not just the underlying crimes that, you know, of course, we're going to investigate and prosecute federally when people are, are using firearms unlawfully and, and hurting people in the community or killing people in the community. But, um, you know, it's also a supply problem. And, you know, people who are unlawfully providing firearms to folks who are then turning around and maybe unlawfully possessing them themselves when they get them and then are turning around and using them in conjunction with violent crimes, that's a problem we have to address. And so one of the priorities of the Department of Justice has, has been made clear, you know, both by the Attorney General and the Deputy Attorney General, is fighting gun trafficking. You know, when, when people break the law in arming, you know, criminals to engage in criminal conduct, we have to do what we can, you know, to fight it. And, you know, I, I, um, we work across, you know, regionally and nationally, and, you know, my colleagues in the Northern District of Indiana or the Northern District of Illinois who, you know, are being impacted by people who are trafficking firearms that may have orig originated in our district. And so we all are working together on the law enforcement side as well as on the prosecution side to try to get our, our hands better on where the guns that are being used in crime are coming from and how we can sort of stem that tide to the extent that there are unlawful transactions taking place, you know, in that chain. Um, so in addition to the firearms trafficking, some of the kind of more under the radar, um, maybe to the general public, um, you know, obviously in law enforcement, you know, we focus on all of these issues. But, you know, we're, we're going to be, you know, devoting, you know, more resources and, and time and attention to fighting cybercrime. Um, obviously, we've had some very high-profile cyber incidents across the nation and in the country, you know, excuse me, and in the district. And whether it is ransomware attacks, you know, that are putting schools, hospitals, and sports teams out of business for periods of time, 
um, and endangering frequently you know, people's health and safety or, or ability to, to you know, receive an education for a period of time or you know, the theft of data and um, you know, the, the theft of not, not just business data but financial information that's then misused, whether it's in financial fraud or identity theft. There are all of these, um, there are all of these sophisticated crimes that are taking place that there are individuals you know, in this country and all over the world who think that they can victimize our district. And if they do so using sophisticated tools or anonymizing technologies, that they can violate the law with impunity. And it's our job as federal law enforcement to show them that that is not the case and that they will be found and they will be held accountable. And we're committed to doing that. So in addition to, to cybercrime, you know, we're also, um, you know, folks don't always hear much about this, but one of the things that Indiana is really nationally renowned for is our, um, our, our ICAC that I will plug, our Indiana Indi Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force mm -hmm. that really is a model for the nation that you know, works together, you know, a, a large number of, of local departments, police departments, sheriff's offices, um, a number of federal agencies like the FBI and Homeland Security, Secret Service, all work together to protect children. And we take, you know, tips that we get from um, internet, you know, electronic communication service providers, um, you know, people who are making reports to, you know, whether it's law enforcement or to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And they're sifting through this enormous amount of incoming information because so much trafficking of child exploitation material and so much online exploitation of, you know, children, frequently vulnerable children, and, you know, a lot of times, you know, children far younger than, you know, people realize are being exploited in this way. And, you know, this team works together to, you know, day after day take some of the worst offenders in our society and get them off the street and get them held accountable and rescue kids and make, you know, the, the community a safer place to be. And their work, I think, can't be commended enough. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, a lot of law enforcement resources, you know, the Indiana State Police actually, um, you know, he heads up that task force. And, you know, the, the working across um, agency lines that, that's shown in that work, and obviously by people who are passionate about, you know, the righteous mission that they're fulfilling, you know, I think that that's a model that, that we should hold up, you know, and, and that the people should know that those of us who've been entrusted with law enforcement powers to protect the public are really doing important work to, to try to make you know, the world a safer place for kids. Um, so in addition to that, we're working on sort of reinvigorating and expanding our efforts in terms of, of fighting human trafficking and particularly um, commercial sex trafficking. On, on the federal law enforcement side, we really focus on individuals who are being trafficked in commercial sex, either who are, the, who are minors who are being exploited in this way or who are being made to engage in this conduct mm -hmm. by means of force, fraud, or coercion, whether it is, you know, beatings or threats or, you know, the withholding of, of narcotic substances or, or controlled substances that they may have a dependence on and the individuals exploiting them are able to take advantage of that to get them to engage in, in you know, these commercial sex transactions for their own financial benefit. So we're going to be, you know, expanding our work in that area and, and seeking to hold, you know, those those individuals accountable in the cases that we're able to bring in federal court. So you have kind of the distinction of being a, a historic nominee to this mm -hmm. role in that, you know, the first African-American man to be the, the um, 
U.S. Attorney for the Southern District, um, also Clifford Johnson in the, the Northern District, President Biden kind of did that in both. I mean, what does that, that mean to you? And, you know, do you consider diversity kind of part of your, you know, agenda is not the right word, but something you work to promote in your office? Well, thank you very much. And I am absolutely cognizant of, you know, the, the importance of that aspect of my service and my nomination and confirmation. And, you know, obviously my, my friend, you know, Cliff Johnson mm -hmm. directly to the north, but also um, U.S. Attorney Gregory Harris to the west in the Central, Central District of Illinois, mm -hmm. um, U.S. Attorney Ken Parker to the east in the Southern District of Ohio. Okay. Um, I believe um, we do have some, some um, U.S. Attorney Don Eisen in the Eastern District of Michigan in Detroit. Okay. And uh, U.S. Attorney nominee who's awaiting um, floor vote, but who's gotten through the, the um, Senate Judiciary Committee, um, Marissa Darden, who will be leading the Northern District of Ohio, you know, should she be confirmed. And I think it, it is important, and you'll see across the country, that a, you know, a substantial number, I think even, you know, in some ways majority, of the nominees that the administration has put forward for these positions have been people of color, have been, you know, women, have been the first um, in their district, you know, with the backgrounds that they have. And I think that w one of the most important things about all of us in these positions is that, you know, almost all of us are experienced federal prosecutors. You know, my, my, my friend, you know, Mr. Johnson has been in that office for 26 years in right. just about every position you can imagine. And, you know, all of my other colleagues, you know, surrounding me as well, you know, have, have put in know, many years of service to the Department of Justice in very various capacities. And obviously, I've had the privilege of serving the Department of Justice, you know, for a decade now. And I think that the combination of that experience and knowledge of the department, all of us with sort of a wide variety of backgrounds in terms of the sorts of work we've done in the department, but I think that bringing not only that diverse subject matter background, but, you know, the, the diverse backgrounds, you know, personally, you know, I, I think really does matter. I think that one of our charges, you know, it, um, you know, as I'm sitting in this chair, is, you know, what can we do to sort of increase public trust and confidence in the work that we're doing on their behalf? You know, every time, uh, as, as the leader of the office, I don't get to do this anymore, but as an assistant U.S. attorney, um, one of my favorite things to do, and I think probably everyone who's had the privilege of serving in those jobs, is to stand up in the well of a federal court and look at a federal judge or look at a jury and say that I'm here on behalf of the United States. And, you know, that, that just means a lot to us who choose this manner of public service. And I think that part of being here on behalf of the United States is having the people of the United States have confidence and support for what we're doing. And, you know, there's been, you know, as, as a black man in law enforcement, I'm very well aware of a number of the issues that have confronted us in law enforcement, you know, many of which, you know, none of which are new, many of which are newly, um, newly discussed or newly widespread because of the, the widespread nature of, um, you know, everyone has in their pocket, you know, a, a high quality um, recording device and, and that's played a role in a lot of, you know, the, the incidents that have been so tragic. And I think that it's important to have diverse viewpoints in the room as we try to build community trust in who we are as law enforcement and, you know, to, sh to show that when folks, you know, who have been entrusted 
with the powers of the public, you know, violate their oaths and, you know, act in a way that's contrary to the law or con contrary to the Constitution, that we're holding them accountable. But at the same time, the folks who, who are, you know, putting on a, a badge and, and carrying a firearm, you know, in, in a public trust, you know, those individuals put their lives on the line every day. And we've seen, you know, in this district a number of times that that's not a theoretical statement. You know, pe you know pe members of law enforcement face deadly danger all the time. And, you know, w when a lawyer leaves their home, even if they're serving the public, you know, their, their family isn't thinking in the back of their minds whether they're going to come home that night. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I have, I have all of the respect in the world for the people who take on, you know, that duty and that public service. And one of the things that we can do to build more trust in that community is, I think, really lift up the work they're doing that people, you know, really should know about. And at the same time, you know, listen to the to people in the community who are sort of rightly upset about, you know, some of the things that have happened and some of the practices and, and policies that have been in place before, because it's not just strings of negative incidents, you know, it's also patterns of um, investigation and prosecution and how we've prioritized um, our resources and you know communities need you know th there are communities who have been besieged by violent crime have been seized by drug trafficking and we need to be looking at those communities as our communities and that they're not just places where offenders are engaging in offenses there are places where uh, you know members of the community you know who are just trying to live their lives and raise their children and contribute you know to their community or their society um, and, and just go to work and come home and be safe and they're being deprived of that by individuals engaged in criminal conduct. So, you know, I, I, I hope that um, by helping to, to spread the message of what we're doing and by aligning our priorities with then what the public will, will really be supportive of and will see is something that we can do in public service and law enforcement. Um, I think that we couple that with having folks in the room in law enforcement and in prosecution who look like the communities we serve. I mean, right. the, you know, the, 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 I, I guess I'm old enough now that I, I'm, I'm no longer the kids, but you know, one of the things that, that the kids say, or really people of all ages say, is that um, representation matters. And I do think that's true. And it's not just in terms of, you know, having someone who looks a certain way or has a certain demographic characteristic, but people who have all sorts of backgrounds and experiences that they bring to that room where we're then sitting down and saying, okay, should someone be held criminally accountable for this thing that happened? How should we charge them? How should we choose to, you know, execute warrants or, you know, bring them into custody? Um, you know, what are the right charges to bring if char bringing charges is the right thing to do? You know, with, with 23 criminal assistants for 4.2, you know, million people, um, we, we do not take many cases more than the cases we do take. And so we have to make sure that as we're picking our shots, because in the federal system we really are, you know, largely working on prosecutorial discretion in, you know, what cases we choose to bring, you know, are we doing that in a way that has the appearance and actuality of, you know, upholding the rule of law, you know, for everybody and upholding equal protection of the law, you know, for all of our community. And so all those things are important, and that's one of the reasons why um, we're, I, I have focused on, um, listening to diverse voices within my office and also making sure that we are you know recruiting and retaining people of you know a, a number of you know of, of all diverse backgrounds but particularly um you know historically underrepresented minorities 
and making sure that we are getting you know great quality applicants you know into the office and bringing them in and sort of raising them into the justice department and you know our cultures and traditions and you know helping them you know come and, and serve the community in our office um, you know it's, it's not always easy particularly with some of the trust issues that you know some communities have you know people the, the kinds of people who have the backgrounds and skills that we need in our office they've got other options <laughs> you know we're in the public sector we can't pay like the private sector there are, are many people who are just you know not comfortable with you know the nature of what we do or their perception of how we do it and that's a barrier not just to public trust but it's a barrier to recruiting and retention and so you know one of the things that I'm hopeful that I'll, I'll be able to, to move the needle on a little bit is by sort of you know demystifying the Department of Justice by you know making clear how we're committed to public service that folks who might not have considered it before think oh you know maybe being a, a federal prosecutor you know is something that I want to do maybe I'm gonna have that light bulb moment like you know the US attorney had when he was in criminal procedure class <laughs> that using my law degree to protect the public or to, to represent the interests of the public as a civil assistant US attorney like that's something that I aspire to and so if I can do anything in you know my the however long I get to have this you know position I want to leave behind for my successor an office that both in terms of having a, a talented and diverse personnel as well as sort of structures and policies that you know leave them in a position to you know point the office in the policy direction that 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 administration is going that the Department of Justice wants to go in at that time and not have to worry that they don't have the structure the diversity the, the leadership and talent that they want to have to com to accomplish the mission of the Justice Department which doesn't really change that much in some ways from administration to administration which is the line assistant you realize you know a bank robbery is a bank robbery mm -hmm. uh, you know someone who's exploiting a child is exploiting the child and there's no sort of administration to administration you know significant you know difference in view that sure. this is wrongful conduct that needs to be held accountable and so if we're doing our jobs right um, you know the, the assistants are going to feel and you know all the staffing offices is going to feel supported in just accomplishing the mission of the Department of Justice. That will do it for this week's episode. Thanks again to U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of Indiana, Zachary Myers, for joining us. Uh, if you're not caught up on the Indiana Lawyer podcast, you can listen to previous episodes on theindianalawyer.com or via your favorite streaming services. Mm -hmm.